Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan. So it is December the thirteenth. Um, coming up on the coming up on the holidays. How's uh, how's your Christmas shopping going? Hasn't been done yet, Ricky. I gotta I gotta get through finals at the end of this week before before I turn my attention to that. But you know, that's a good, if not welcome, reminder that uh, it's time to get on all of those things if, if we haven't yet. You know, it's funny. Uh, I feel like I, maybe marriage has changed me. I'm normally a December 24th kind of guy, but this time I, I hit it pretty hard on Black Friday. I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about where I am. Yeah, I don't like that at all, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, maybe you have totally grown up. Yeah. <laughs> well, what are we talking about this week? Really excited to welcome Rand Wilson onto the program this week. He is a labor organizer. He's been on the ground doing union work and labor work for 40 years at this point. And Ricky, you and I have been circling this issue for a while. We talked a few months ago about the Amazon uh, in New York unionizing. And at the, in that conversation, I distinctly remember us being like, we got to circle back because we want to have a more full conversation about this when we know more. And hopefully you and I know a little bit more, but we figured the best way to do this would be to bring someone on that actually does this work and has done this work for decades. And so I think we'll get into this with Rand, but we wanted to talk to him about some like general trends in labor and unionizing that he's seen over the course of his time in the movement. But then there are some specific things that we wanted to talk about as well, um, particularly the the railway strike that was narrowly averted when the when Congress and, and the president intervened last week, what that all means, how he feels about that, and then probably some political stuff, how how the labor movement ties into some of the political movements that we've seen in recent years too. Yeah, I mean, definitely a a, a fascinating bit of recent events with with Amtrak Joe and uh, and the railway unions. Yeah, so it should be a really good conversation. We're looking forward to it. Uh, before we get into that, I do want to remind everyone that the podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. They've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two N's. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. And Ricky, with us talking about unions and organization, I had a question for you. Hit me. What do you call it when a few woodworkers get together to discuss the best types of flooring? No idea. Oh, we couldn't go two in a row? Good. I, that would, you, you were going to start seeing through me. Well, a board meeting, of course, Ricky. Yeah. <laughs> that was very good. Yeah, not, not a bad one. I'm, I think I'm on a solid run here to close out 2022. All right. Uh, let's bring on Rand. So we are now very excited to welcome Rand Wilson onto the program. Rand has been a union organizer and a labor communicator since the early 1980s. His 
CV on union organizing and labor organizing is extensive. So I'll just hit the high notes, but it, it includes working as a member of the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union, the Communication Workers of America. He helped spur the formation of Massachusetts Jobs for Justice. In in the early 1990s, he spearheaded efforts in Massachusetts to support legislation for universal health care. He also worked against so-called free trade agreements like NAFTA and the World Trade Organization. In the mid-90s, he worked for the Teamsters Union. Um, He's also been uh, active in electoral politics, Previously, he's run for the state auditor position. He also helped establish the Working Families Party affiliate in Massachusetts. In 2016, uh, inspired by Bernie Sanders' campaign, he worked as a national coordinator for labor for Bernie and continues to be active in Our Revolution, which is the Sanders campaign successor organization at the state and local levels. He's previously been a delegate to the Massachusetts Democratic Convention in 2017-2019-21-22. Unions, no, he's not an intellectual, he's not an economist. With that said, he's got 40 years on the ground doing this stuff. So we feel really lucky that he's going to give us his, what we would definitely call his expertise with uh, the the union movement. So, Rand, thanks so much for giving us a little bit of your time today. Well, it's a pleasure to be here and great to meet you guys. Yeah, and while while Rand is meeting me for the first time, Rand is actually reconnecting with Ricky. Uh, Rand and Ricky's father have crossed paths in, in the labor movement previously. So Rand was just telling Ricky that he hasn't seen him in probably 20, 25 years, but uh, they are reconnecting today. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, we, we were saying like small world and then Rand was like, well, it's, it's Boston. <laughs> that's just what it is. Uh, all right. So, Rand, kind of, we want to start big picture before getting into some more specific questions. So, like we said, you've been doing this for 40 years. What, did, what would you describe as some of like the macro trends you've seen in labor organizing during the time you've been doing it? Hmm. Um, when I first got involved, I think private sector union membership in the late 70s was something like 26%, 24%, you know, it, it, somewhere in that category. And I thought to myself at the time, oh, man, we're going to turn that around. This is a disaster. And, uh, you know, the union movement is so weak. Um, we, we've just, uh, we need new leadership. We need to revitalize our unions. And we need, you know, a, a, a new approach and build the labor movement to, you know, back up to where it was in the uh, 40s, 50s, and 60s to, you know, 35% of the private sector uh, workforce, Uh, 50%, you know, I mean, uh, everybody should be in a union. So every worker should be in a union. Um, And so the trend since then has been all downhill. Under, you know, my generation's watch, it's been a nightmare. And uh, uh, so today we're at below 7% uh, membership in labor unions in the private sector. And it's just, you know, 
the last 40 years have been, um, I can't say it's been, you know, all bad. There's been so many, you know, great moments and um, wonderful uh, gains that have been made by uh, workers. But fundamentally, we've lost uh, working class power. Uh, and, you know, you can see the ramifications of that uh, manifesting themselves politically with uh, the emergence of uh, the kind of very far uh, right uh, conservative thinking that's become more and more prevalent in the country. And I think there's a connection between the two. Definitely. I definitely want to circle back on that, but maybe um, some more recent high notes, or I'm curious how you were thinking about some of the resurgence in union drives in say the Amazon warehouses or among Starbucks, like employees, baristas, how does that, yeah. How does that compare to sort of union movements that you were maybe a part of? And then does that give you hope for the future? Yeah. So that trajectory that's been downhill since the late seventies, you know, we're finally seeing a resurgence and uh, this has been, honestly, since about uh, 2015, 2016, even going back to 2011 with the Occupy movement, um, uh, I have felt like organizing has turned around. And, you know, we, we haven't significantly increased union membership, but the interest in labor, the support for collective bargaining, for workers' rights, um, and the general concern about, um, you know, low wages and working con- and poor working conditions has uh, become a topic of, uh, you know, popular concern. Um, and instead of union officials being demonized as, uh, you know, fat cat party bosses with big cigars, um, we're actually rising above the status of mortician and used car salesman to a new level of uh, of public respect somewhere, you know, uh, below a flight attendant and a pilot and a nurse but uh, uh, or a doctor or an engineer, but um, not at the bottom. And uh, it feels great. And it, it, it really is... Uh, uh, been a trend. I feel I I kind of touch base with with what happened with Occupy, and the definition of uh, uh, you know a, a new kind of paradigm about uh, uh, the one percent being uh, the problem, and kind of defining class conflict between that the the billionaire class and the rest of us. And it began to take shape with Occupy and then took huge leap forward with the Sanders campaign that started in 2015 and crested in 2016 and continued uh, uh, to this day. And, um, you know, it's it's uh, it's not just slogans. It's the reality for an emerging generation of young people who really want to. Uh, have a future that they can believe in and recognize that uh, the levels of inequality that have become prevalent in this country and around the world, um, you know, are in direct conflict with uh, addressing 
global climate change or addressing uh, the, you know, and responsible for the deterioration in our democracy and uh, democratic institutions uh, that can't, you know, you can't have a democracy where you have um, such extremes of wealth and poverty. Uh, it, it, it is such a corrupting influence. Uh, and we see it every day that, you know, these, the, the, the power that huge uh, mega billionaires are exerting, whether it's uh, Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or whomever, this, this, uh, this rampant inequality, which again, kind of tracks with uh, the decline in collective bargaining, right? I, I'm not going to assert that collective bargaining is, um, you know, the only answer to uh, to wealth inequality that we have in this country, but it certainly has been a, uh, a check against it. And when you no longer have a functioning collective bargaining system, uh, it's only enriched uh, that 1%. Not sure I answered your question, Ricky. But no, you did. You did. I, I want to hop in here with a follow up because so I read recently that the National Labor Relations Board reported a 57 percent increase in union elections of the first half of the 2022 fiscal year and that unions are winning, I think, more than uh, three quarters of those elections. And then I saw a Gallup poll that said that uh, American support of unions is at 71 percent, which is the highest level in almost 50 years. So. I'm curious because do you just see that as the natural upswing of the movement that's been happening for a decade and maybe specifically in the last five or six years, or is are there other factors at play where all of a sudden in the last year and a half, there seems to be more of like this widespread support for unions? Um, I appreciate the fact that you've done your homework. Uh, uh, try. <laughs> yeah, no, you're, you're well prepared better than I, uh, but yeah. I would say um, there is something that's changed in the last uh, year or two, and that is uh, we elected a Democrat as president, and he has made appointments to the National Labor Relations Board that are um, that have created finally a, a labor board that is um supporting workers rights uh imagine you know you're a worker in this country and you've got an agency that's been created to facilitate uh collective bargaining and to facilitate uh uh respect for uh the the, the worker who wants to improve their wages and working conditions that doesn't do its job that is in fact always in favor of the employer and uh, this doesn't give people confidence to assert their rights in on the job. And remember, the workplace is a uh, you you walk through the the door of your employer. You you cross that gate into the uh, private domain of an employer. You give up all your rights. You no longer have uh, the same rights that. Uh, you have in civil society. It is not a democracy in the workplace. It's a dictatorship. And the only way that you can gain uh, any kind of a voice in your wages and working conditions is through some sort of collective activity. 
Um, and we, we, we call it uh, under the National Labor Relations Act, it's, it's Section 7 of the Act, and it's uh, uh, designed to protect workers that engage in concerted, meaning more than one person, uh, uh, activity to improve their wages and working conditions. That's protected by the Labor Act. But you had a labor board that didn't enforce it. And employers routinely uh, uh, broke the law with impunity. So uh, that didn't give people confidence. Now you have the intersection of what what I was describing earlier, this uh, younger generation looking for uh, uh, to address issues uh, that are uh, both workplace related and sort of macro. Um, and you finally have a, a, a political context that's more supportive of that. And so in, in the last, you know, you, you know, we, we, we get excited about the uprising of workers at Amazon and the incredible energy that's been unleashed with the Starbucks campaign. But it, it only happens because you've got the intersection of uh, social movement and political context. That makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting, obviously, I, I wonder how familiar you are personally with Marty Walsh, but there was a big kind of pat on the back of the Biden administration of putting Marty Walsh in that that position, uh, because he is a labor man, he's a union man. And it was the first time in a while that 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 had happened. Uh, it's funny, Ricky usually like, often points to like, when President Trump appointed Rick Perry as the Secretary of uh, Energy or Scott Pruitt as the head of the EPA. And he's like, when you have people who are running these organizations, these admit like these cabinets who explicitly don't believe in the mission of these cabinets, like what do you expect is going to happen? That's right. Yeah. Um, uh, Marty's a Dorchester guy. I know him pretty well since he was a, a, a state rep and, you know, and a union official at the same time. Uh, with the laborers. And I thought Biden's appointment, it disappointed a lot of people because they wanted to see a person of color. They wanted to see a woman in the job. But I thought it was a brilliant appointment uh, to put a card carrying union member as head of the labor department and to put somebody that, um, you know, people can relate to. Marty is a working class guy. You know, he's he is he just comes across as a man of the people. And I, I feel like uh, that was an, a particularly important when you're starting to lose that white working class vote. Uh, I think uh, Biden made a smart move to put a white working class guy in there that uh, is relatable. And again, uh, unlike those other agencies, you've got somebody that believes in the mission that's overseeing uh, the the cabinet, and uh, you know it's refreshing, and it's it it has in fact been, uh, I think, uh, created that context for people to feel more confident uh, in retail, in wholesale, in manufacturing, in uh, in healthcare, in education, to assert their rights and to uh, begin to. Uh, act together to improve their wages and working conditions and feel like, hey, you know, uh, maybe the government will have my back this time. All right. Now that's where I want to jump off with uh, maybe the I government. Know, I know where we're going. <laughs> perfect, perfect transition. I appreciate that. So this is what's been in the news and one of the kind of provided the urgency for Ricky and I to reach out to Rand because the National like Railway Association of Workers, there, there are 12 different unions that represent the 
the railway workers. And obviously, probably goes without saying that railroads are critical to our economy, to really everything that we do as a country. And they've been negotiating a new deal for three years. It seemed to have come to a head this past summer where it looked like the the unions were threatening to strike, which would have thrown a wrench into the bigger wrench into the economy at the time. And Marty Walsh stepped in at, at the Biden administration's directing and seemed to have brokered an agreement. That agreement would have seen that the railroad workers get a roughly 24% pay increase over the next three years, which seems extraordinary in some ways. And then you think, well, if we're at 8% inflation, that's really just kind of like keeping up with with the cost of living. Um, And it looked like the deal, the crisis was averted in September. Eight of the unions voted for this new agreement, but four of the unions didn't. And those four unions represented a little over half of all railway workers. And so it came again just last week where it looked like this was going to be another crisis where if the railway workers decided they were going to strike, it was going to shut down the economy until, I mean, not shut down, but really make a big impact on the economy and, and until we were able to come to an agreement on this. And I think it was going to cost people estimated almost like $2 billion a day um, in terms of goods. Obviously, we're coming up to the holiday season where people are maybe even more urgently trying to get goods into their homes. And so President Biden uh, and Congress decided to intervene and essentially force the two sides to agree to the deal that they had come up with back in September. Uh, It was an overwhelmingly bipartisan vote. It was an 80 to 15 vote in the Senate. And what it did was the the reason that the railway unions, some of them were still holding out is because they wanted paid sick leave. And they didn't get that in the original agreement. They were desperately fighting for it. Some Democrats and Republicans, actually, um, but led by Bernie Sanders, floated an idea of, can we vote? Can we get them this paid sick leave? Ultimately, that deal didn't happen. And so what happened was this you know, Union Joe and the the pro-labor and this union carrying union member Marty Walsh essentially forced these unions, these union workers to go back to work, even though they didn't agree to the deal. So, Rand, very curious what you thought about the whole negotiation process and where we ended up. Well, you first of all, again, I want to congratulate you for doing your homework and uh, being quite um, factual in terms of uh what just happened, Um, you know, I was really disappointed that they couldn't, that they intervened in preventing a strike and that they invoked the uh, Railway Labor Act's provisions to, to impose a settlement. But you've got to remember that there's plenty of blame to go around here. Uh, the union leaders looked to the Biden administration to help broker a deal with the railroad workers. So in negotiations that had dragged on for years, they were not able to reach a collective bargaining agreement uh, directly with the employers. And they asked, the labor leaders asked the government to assemble a um you know, a, a a panel, I forget the name of it, a presidential review board, I think PRB, something like that, to, to help uh, reach uh, an equitable settlement. 
the union leaders entered into that process with management, with government assistance, and they reached a tentative agreement that the union leaders felt would be acceptable. So they're telling the Biden administration, this is good enough. We're going to take it back to their members and they'll ratify it. Thank you very much. And guess what? Those union leaders were a little out of touch, weren't they? They didn't realize how strongly the membership felt about uh, the scheduling and the uh, forced um, time that they have without any kind of provisions for, for sick leave. It, you know, a railroad worker's tour of duty isn't the same as just coming to work uh, at, you know, nine o'clock going home at five, right? It's a, it's a different kind of uh, employment. And uh, they're scheduled out for a certain number of days or weeks, and then they're brought back. And um, so it's it's not the kind of employment that we think of. And, you know, they're genuinely, clearly very pissed off about uh, the way that they're treated and the way that they've been treated. Um, and it, it sort of bottled up around this uh, paid sick leave issue. So the union leaders you know, misunderstood their own membership. And that kind of put, uh, uh, you, you kind of put the president and Walsh into a box there that, uh, you know, when it, when the, when the deal got rejected by those, uh, those four, four of the uh, 12 unions that made up a uh, uh, 50% of the group. So, I would just say, uh, you know, there's the the union leaders clearly were a little bit out of touch, a little bit, <laughs> maybe a lot. And uh, there's also some some, you know, uh, we can't let the the employers off the hook here. Right. Because um, there's plenty of blame to go around the way that they have. Uh, my understanding is that, um, you know, you preface this. Uh, conversation about rail by talking about how important rail rails railway freight delivery and rail is to the economy and yet we've allowed these rail uh, corporations to be taken over by uh, the worst kind of hedge funds and wall street uh, investors that are looking for the highest rates of return on essentially a foundation of uh, the economic infrastructure. And uh, this is what's really galled the, the rail worker. Continual cuts in staffing, uh, longer and longer tours of duty, uh, deteriorating working conditions. And um, that's, you know, that's what kind of was the, the, the crucible in which uh, so much ferment happened and where the, uh, I think everybody was a little out of touch with what the rank and file were feeling. Um, was there a solution? Well, Sanders and uh, the Progressive Caucus in the House side wanted to see if they could track uh, uh, sick days with uh, in, in separate legislation with the uh, the tentative agreement that had been agreed to, that they were seeking to then impose through a vote of Congress. You know, 
they didn't have the votes and it failed. Uh, I kind of wish that there had been, uh, uh, that uh, the administration had used its bully pulpit maybe to uh, go a little further. Um, you know, it's disappointing uh, to have that imposed like that and not to find a way. Um, Biden has pledged to to seek another way with uh, for the, the sick time. Um, he can do that with uh, his executive power if he's creative, um, you know, to the extent that these railroads contract with the government for certain services. Um, he might be able to use his executive authority. Um, we'll see. And will he do that before the end of the year? Again, we'll have to see. And, you know, what are the possibilities for doing that with a Republican House, uh, but perhaps a more generous Senate? So, you know, uh, we'll just have to see uh, whether or not there's a uh, a workaround. Um, I I think uh, it's, it, you know, the, the Democrats have egg on their face with this, certainly in the popular mindset. Because I don't think I don't think most people get the uh, the nuances uh, and uh, understand, uh, you know, some of the culpability here. So it would be wise to come up with a fix and to restore uh, the reputation of the Democrats and particularly of the Biden administration. Um, uh, and uh, I just hope they can do that. For a person like myself, who is what we call Dem Enter, I not demented, but Dem Enter. Uh, the the uh, you know, I was an I was a unenrolled uh, voter. I did not believe that the Democratic Party would be uh, a party that would advance the interests of working people and of labor. With the Sanders campaign, I enrolled as a Democrat and made a vow that I would go to the convention to support uh, Sanders in 2016 and be, you know, join the Democratic Party. And I have to say, I'm still uh, a Democrat and intent and, and very intent on continuing to, to seek uh ways of using the Democratic Party uh, as a party of working people. Um, I, I, I think it's our best best way uh, foot forward. Some people immediately, you know, after this uh, congressional imposition, you know, condemned the squad, condemned Sanders, condemned Walsh. And, you know, we need to start a labor party. We need to start, you know, a new political uh, party. I get the frustration, but I think those are dead ends. And ultimately, going to be uh, uh, self-defeating. So, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I mean that that's that's something that we talk about a lot on this podcast. Sort of the the dual, the sort of the the two party nature of the way American politics has really functioned. As I call it, the tyranny of the two party system. <laughs> um, it's tough. Yeah. And, so breaking, I, breaking out of that tyranny is is has and uh, 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 it, it's extremely frustrating, you know, very, yeah. very frustrating. 
I think as someone who was, you know, really entrenched in the Sanders campaign in 2016, this is something that I'm really curious about. Um, so obviously you alluded to this earlier, how, how Trump was able to, uh, kind of get a defection of the, you know, the core democratic base in sort of those Rust Belt states by, by sort of doing the things that Democrats have been afraid to do for like the last 20 years, which is challenge some of the tenets of globalization. So, you know, Trump was sort of famously anti the TPP. Bernie Sanders was as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I guess I wonder how you think about what elements he was really able to tap into that the Democratic Party has sort of had sort of either taken for granted or almost forsaken over the last like 20 years. And do you see with, you know, Amtrak Joe and pro-labor Walsh, like a movement back or, you know, with some missteps in maybe this recent negotiation and certainly the income inequality question or the situation is not, has not dramatically improved under either Democrats or Republicans. Like, yeah. How do you, how are you sort of viewing this from a, from a 3000 foot lens? Wow. Um, Democrats have walked away from the working class in as a uh, in everything but their rhetoric, and it, it's it's the rhetoric and the reality that have exposed uh, the Democrats are unwilling, you know, to challenge corporate power, and so they posture with uh, a lot of good talk about you know, progress for working families, but workers haven't seen it. And so you, you, you've been getting the promise for 20 years, but not the result. And uh, there's been this incredible decline in uh, wages, a decline in working conditions. And um, the, the agencies un- under Democrats and Republicans, the, you know, the agencies that we look for uh, to improve our lives uh, whether it's health and welfare with Social Security and Medicare, or whether it's uh, the National Labor Relations Board or the Department of Labor, Wage and Hour Division, they've all, you know, let us down. They've they've uh, been underfunded and done less and uh, disappointed uh, the the regular uh, working class person in this country. Um, there's more economic insecurity, not less. And so after a while, you know, people get tired of listening to rhetoric and not seeing any actual result from that. And, uh, you know, a perfect example is uh, the whole debate that just occurred about inflation, where the Democrats were pinned to the wall, but refusing to call out corporate profiteering that's been uh, one of the drive, not the only force behind inflation, but one of the driving forces behind inflation has been corporate profiteering off of uh, COVID and off of uh, 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 the supply chain problems. And uh, it's it's not like there was shared sacrifice here, but the Dems refused to call it out. If I was Biden, I would have arrested a couple of oil executives and you know brought them into court and said, you, you know, what you're doing is illegal. 
and we're going to find a law and pin you to the wall because you are the one that's responsible for these outrageous increases in gas prices that where you're pocketing uh, huge shareholder returns for you and your friends. You know, screw that. But you never heard a peep out of a single Democrat, except for, you know, a couple of squad members, and Bernie Sanders, you know, the, the usual suspects. But uh, the Democratic Party as a whole refused to call out corporate America for profiteering because they support that. You know, that's you know, that's the Democratic Party that we have is supportive of that kind of uh, rapacious profiteering. And uh, it's 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 uh, the kind of thing that, you know, when people see that they uh, begin to defect. Right. And so this other guy that, you know, is dangling some uh, platitudes and uh, again, more false rhetoric, but at least it's a new face that becomes more attractive. And, you know, it's it's a tragedy that uh, the Republican Party is increasingly becoming a party of the working class. And boy, if we allow that to happen, uh, there's going to be, uh, you know, full blown fascism in this country. Uh, it's not unique in history. Right. It's not unique to see uh, working people align themselves behind the, the, the sort of authoritarian governments. And it's it's a phenomenon all around the world, whether it's uh, Bolsonaro or uh, the guy in the Philippines, Duarte, or um, uh, the woman in France. Uh, I can't remember her name. From Japan. You know, it's not just a U.S. phenomenon. This is a global phenomenon. And uh, it's very reminiscent. It's different, but it's very reminiscent of the Mussolini types and the uh, the Hitler types from another era, right? Uh, um, so uh, if we're going to stop that, uh, we we need to assert a very different kind of politics. Wow. I thought, so I thought I had a question lined up and then that was a really interesting finish to that. But I, I kind of wanted to build off that and, and maybe I can come up with something as I'm talking here, where in the the railway strike the forcing them to come to the table, as I mentioned in the Senate, was 80 to 15 vote. And as you said, Bernie Sanders voted against it. Elizabeth Warren voted against it. I will say to Elizabeth Warren's credit, I'm not a huge fan of hers, but I do think she does call out the corporate profiteering very consistently. But then it was 10 Republicans who voted against the bill compared to just five Democrats who did. And Josh Hawley, who again, I am not a fan of at all, but he came out and he said, if the Republicans want, if the Republican Party want, is going to be a majority party in this country, we have to be for the working people. And that increasingly seems to be the case. And Ricky alluded to this, where what was the Democratic base for a long time, in addition to working class black voters, working class white voters. Those voters, have, especially white voters, working class voters without a college degree, that's now the Republican base. I'm curious why are you, why were you so seemingly concerned about that hmm the concern is that uh republicans are even more cynical and less genuine than the democrats and you know to see them manipulate that base uh and let's be clear it's you know there's a defection of white working class voters from the Democratic Party to the Republicans. It's not like 
you know, a majority of white working class people are supporting the Republicans and that's their new base. Um, but the trend is concerning and uh, that the the defection is concerning. And um, the Republicans are, you know, no different than uh, a, a Mussolini or uh, a Bolsonaro or a, a, a Donald Trump, uh, very capable of of whipping up support among people, using divisive, uh, you know, uh, language and politics and um, preying on people's insecurities, right? Uh, that have been, again, as I as we've talked about, insecurities that have festered for a really long time and only gotten worse. Uh, so to prey on that, uh, and then invoke, um, you know, s- solutions that uh, would, in fact, make things much, much worse for working people in this country. Privatizing uh, Medicare, uh, under uh, taking Social Security funds and giving them to uh, Wall Street. Um, you know, these are the these are the agenda of the Republican Party that. Um, you know, if you if you sort of move the curtain back, that's what they're intent upon doing, uh, which would really undermine um, uh, people's quality of life and their um, economic security. So I'm very concerned about the trend of uh, the uh, Republicans seducing more and more working class people. And it's, you know, look at this, the midterm election just now, the Republicans got to be scratching their heads and saying, you know, we better figure out a way to appeal to more uh, people of color and to more working class people. Otherwise, we're done as a party and we can't. And if we, you know, if we, you know, pin our, our ourselves to this clown, uh, that's not that's not a that's not doesn't look like a very successful electoral strategy. So it was, it's great to see uh, Donald Trump going down, but, you know, a Pence or a DeSantis is just as, or actually more dangerous than a Donald Trump because these guys are actually smart. You know, they're, they actually are capable of communicating, uh, I think, in a much deeper l- level with people and are much more capable of, of um, uh, leading a party that could be even more dangerous. So, so I know we're coming up on time here, so maybe I'll try and wrap up with one one final question for you. If kind of the Republican... Uh, uh, the time flies when we're having fun like this. I told like, you, like we said, told we, you this is going to happen. We've <laughs> here for weeks, so it's... But, but if, if we kind of think about the Republican Party, at least under Donald Trump, right, taking up this idea of anti-globalization because it's right, like America first, there is a way to appeal to some of the basis instincts that it's other people that are taking away, you know, that are eating my lunch. And we, we finally have to write it's anti-immigration. It's, it's all, it's all these different things, but the democratic party in, in some ways has leaned into things like globalization, obviously to the detriment of the American worker. So when you think about globalization and how kind of the labor movement can 
can function in this reality that we do have to have a certain degree of cooperation and partnership and open communication with the rest of the world if we're going to tackle issues like climate change. Like, how do you see that tension? Because there is there is some of it, right? Like the there is the idea that, you know, you can if you're not going to pay the proper wages and, and benefits that your outlay was outsourcing and, you know, finding other countries that had fewer laws and even fewer protections and you could, you know, do things that way. How do you see that kind of working out? And and yeah, how can the Democratic Party continue to be the party of uh, of kind of international cooperation while also advancing workers' rights at home, knowing that we operate in this very capitalistic mind frame where, you know, labor is an input and we want the cheapest cost. Well, well, this is the hardest question, you know, and you saved it for last. Um, (laughs) And, you know, I don't have a facile answer, except that, you know, I think a global labor rights perspective laid over the trade question and the international cooperation question would help a great deal at uh, uh, balancing uh, the cooperation, trade, free trade, open trading, open borders issue with uh, uh, the need for economic security uh, and for, you know, local jobs and or domestic jobs and you know i you got to connect the dots between the waves of immigration that are coming into this country and the super exploitation of labor uh in those countries where people are coming from uh latin america mexico south america uh from uh, uh parts of asia uh from africa What's going on in those countries that are driving people to take these perilous journeys, right, to leave their families, to uproot themselves from their culture and their community to come to the United States? And, you know, we as a labor movement and as a society, we need to examine what's happening uh, uh, and connect it to climate change and connect it to oppressive regimes that in many cases, this country is is actively supporting the those regimes. And that's the policy that needs to be reexamined. If we're going to deal with immigration, deal with climate change, we've got to look at uh, the structure of these uh, economies and governments uh, in the countries where people are coming from. And uh, we've got to begin balancing uh, their ability to uh, exploit labor and the environment in those places. Uh, And, you know, that needs to be factored into the trade question. And, you know, I think the most recent NAFTA agreement uh, made some steps in that direction. Um, And so some progress has been made, but we've got to go much further. All right, Rand. Well, thank you so much. That was a fascinating conversation. As Time really does fly when you're having conversations like this, but we we greatly appreciate you being so generous with with your time today. And I think Ricky and I have a lot to think about, a lot to to talk about once once you sign off. Okay, well, it's been a real pleasure to see uh, 
to meet you, Brendan, and to uh, Ricky to see you after 15 or 20 years. Um, and uh, I look forward to hearing the show and being embarrassed by my answers. I'm sure you will not be, but we, we look forward to uh, to send it off to you. So thank you again. We really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Have a good day. That was fun. That was really an interesting conversation. I'm gonna I honestly want to go and listen back to it because I think he gave me so much to think about. And as he was speaking, Ricky, I was like, sometimes we like line up a Kornacki and we're like, this episode is going to be awesome. It's gonna be super interesting. And then uh, like reaching out to Rand, you hope that it's going to be awesome, but that I that exceeded my expectations. I thought that was a really just a fascinating conversation. Yeah, I I mean uh, obviously as uh, as you said in his introduction, 40 years kind of on the ground um, as part of this movement definitely gives him a, a, a unique perspective. And it was really, uh, really interesting to think or to hear how he thinks about some of the things that that we think about. And obviously from a, a, a very different lens on our end. Yeah, for sure. And he was so humble, like pri- prior to the show being like, I'm not some sort of like labor intellectual or an economist or anything or an expert on railway. And it's like, uh, I don't know that we could have talked to a better person to understand some of like the underlying issues regarding unions and labor organizing over the past you know, 40 years, even the past 10, five year. Uh I don't, I'm curious what stood out to you or what's going to make you think the most. I, I actually want to build off your last question a little bit because you've probably seen that I guess I just want to talk about US free trade policy in general so for as you said and you've said repeatedly that the Democrats and Republicans are often more similar than they are different on so many of their policies and with free trade it's been a bipartisan like free trade more and more over the, the past two decades like we talk about NAFTA that was under President Clinton's administration under a Republican controlled Congress, but this was just in Bush and Obama were the same way. We've said this repeatedly. It was Trump who came in and shook everything up. And Trump was the one that started, as you said, under the guise of America first, but starting putting like more tariffs in and more protections for American businesses and American workers. But the latest sticking point has been over the Inflation Reduction Act. Because in the Inflation Reduction Act, in order to combat this terrible problem of climate change, the Biden administration is going to create a bunch of like incredible subsidies for American like clean energy, like that that uh, those kind of com- industries. I guess I want to say, and that's faced like a lot of pushback from the European Union, which was kind of like what the heck? Like I thought, thought we were good here, and the European Union is now looking around, and, and China is obviously not. a a true free trade country and under trump the united states started pulling back from free trade and now under biden it seems like we're pulling back from free trade and i think the european union is like we might have to start like a a europe first type movement and i don't know i like i just i don't like that because yeah i am a globalist like i am someone that loves free trade and but i'm i'm just curious like what what do you think especially having just just heard from Rand about like the the pros and cons of of something like that. Like, I, sorry, but like the the IRA was designed. Uh, one of the best parts about the IRA theoretically is that it's going to make significant investments in combating climate change, which is I think objectively good, but at the expense of 
limiting free trade and limiting our partnerships with Europe, which can lead to like bigger problems down the road when we're trying we're trying to talk about not only trade but climate change and immigration and all these other things. What, what, what? Clearly, I have a lot of thoughts. That was that was like a you rant right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, and of course I loved it. Um, the I I think it is a really interesting question. Like obviously, as a you know a, a major in economics, I will hugely disclaim that does not make me an economist but like the number one thing or like you know micro and macroeconomics 101 basically says as soon as you introduce a subsidy you're basically cutting out a portion of like what the market is able to achieve on its own in terms of like the the optimal allocation of supply and demand as soon as you introduce a subsidy you're going to cut out a portion of that and and it leads to from this very high level uh, like understanding of economics and a market inefficiency. Basically saying that if I'm subsidizing my own, uh, like me, country A, subsidizing country A workers and or whatever production facilities, that means that another country that might be able to do the same thing at a lower cost is now getting potentially priced out of the market because of my subsidy. Okay. So, so start there that subsidies, the reason that people have tried to get away from that and what the world trade organization does in terms of promoting free trade, is to try and limit these market inefficiencies to say that we want, you know, whichever place is doing it the best and doing it for the lowest cost at the highest quality, we want them to be able to succeed whether or not their government can give them extra, you know, money for it, right? Like that's the high level, what's the idea? Now, the problem that I think Rand clearly highlighted is that our world obviously does not work like an economic model with assumptions of, you know, some degree of uh, uh, on par, you know, equality across markets, right? So it the the idea that it could be cheaper to do something in China or in India than it is here is partly related to a cost of living, but it's also partly related to lax regulations. You have like basically conditions that that those workers can get exploited in ways that maybe certain people can't get here. So the, I yeah, I mean, I wholly think that this is problematic. Potent, you know, the idea of trade wars, either tariffs, tariffs on foreign goods or subsidies on domestic goods causes inefficiencies where in reality, as a world, we want everything to be made as well as it can be made wherever it is best to be made. And then we want to trade, right? Like that's how we get the most out of what we have. But we've been operating in in, to some degree without considering the environment as a as a cost of what we're doing right so we have all this pollution problem but we've also been operating in a way that workers have not like there because there is no sort of united labor movement workers have not really been considered and we continue to have this rising inequality between so it it is this very interesting tension between kind of like our capitalistic ideal of how we can extract the most from the least and everybody can kind of be happy at the end of the day. Well, which is not actually the capitalistic ideal, but 
extracting the most from the least is is a major tenant into like how it has played out in reality um which for tackling things like climate change has been very very problematic and while we celebrate something like the inflation reduction act as you said are we actually making it worse is is our subsidization of domestic uh sort of climate change fighting technology going to impact the global market in such a way that we get to these innovations more slowly than we would have if we sort of more broadly were trying to find solutions collectively. That's like, now I've, ran, I've ranted double your rant, but <laughs> <laughs> it is, I, I, th- I think it is a very difficult question to solve because it requires so much collective imagination for how we get to this when we're in this weird moment where we've gone completely the opposite direction from globalization. We're thinking nationally, we're thinking even, yeah, whatever, regionally between NAFTA, EU and Asia. Um, How do we get out of that in order to, you know, not, uh, not, you know, try and fight this global challenge with one hand tied behind our back because we're, you know, kind of whatever, cutting our nose off to spite our face. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think Rand did point to like a potential solution of not necessarily like abandoning these free trade agreements, but layering them with certain protections, whether they're protections for workers or protections for the environment. And to me that, that I'm totally on board with something like that. It, it it is interesting. He was like so critical of, and I understand that he can be critical of of people for different reasons. Like you can hate President Trump not because of his his policies towards workers, but because of numerous other things. And Bolsonaro, who he referenced in, in Brazil, or Marine Le Pen in France, like. But there does. <laughs> It does seem to be like a little bit of like even when you were just speaking, it was almost like a workers workers of the world unite type type moment where it's like, all right, let's make sure that we're all protecting our workers. And I think that was a big tenet. So I guess and this is where I think the Republican Party is really in a bind here, because for so long they were this party. And even as you correctly point out, in reality, Democrats were too largely, but the Republicans could at least like when they're putting their policies, their platforms forward, they could say that we are free trade, we are market or market economy. And Trump flipped that all on on its head and he capitalized on all of that with a million other things. But like when I read the Hawley quote, and Hawley is another guy who we've talked about before, huge, you know, insurrectionist, but like also like the Yale trained, like Northeastern elite liberal, like education in a lot of ways. Right. So it's interesting that he's the one, and this is where I do think I agree with Rand that that those people are actually more dangerous because I don't believe for a second that Josh Hawley is actually looking out for like the working class person in the United States. He's trying to use those people. But I do think there is a legitimate battle for the soul of the Republican Party between some people who are legitimately like, who who is our base now? It's it's. I disagree with Rand on that point where he was kind of like that the white working class isn't the Republican. It one hundred percent is the the base of the Republican Party right now. I uh, it's like is white college voters without uh white non white voters without a college degree. But I do think there's a legitimate soul of like those are the people that. 
that's why they believed in Trump for a lot of reasons. And yeah, maybe there's there's fringes of them that were more attracted to his anti-immigration rhetoric or, or those those types of things that he would say. But I think a lot of them felt like, look, someone's speaking to my situation finally. And I and so I, I think that a lot of people in the Republican Party who want to continue that movement and maybe shed some of the more problematic things about it, like they want to continue that way. While there is a significant portion of more traditional conservative Republicans that are <laughs> that don't believe in those things. So I, I do think that's an issue for Republicans right now. I, and to a lesser extent, I think Democrats are dealing with a similar type internal issue. Yeah, well, I, I think it is an interesting point like in terms of how could republicans take up this issue in a meaningful way like i i think it was you know you know for whatever uh for whatever it's worth the idea that people were trying to limit you know the sort of the non-pc criticism of you know can we blame china for our problems here and Trump obviously they threw that out the window and was like, of course you can. It's entirely their fault. And intuitively, I think it resonated with a lot of people that like, of course, I'm not having my job here because XYZ in a different country is taking that job from me. But the problem for the Republican Party is that the solution that they are sticking to under so the Trump-led Republican Party are all meant to be punitive to other countries and not in the same way that you might think of a, a strong labor movement in the U.S. being more tied to securing more rights and more guarantees for the American worker. I think I think this is where like the the Trump rhetoric can really get the people going at rallies and things like that, which obviously I think we still need to examine why that's so appealing um, and figure out if we can address that because that societally I think is a problem. But this is sort of the problem, but, but what Rand was hinting at, and I think what like I would say as well is that the democratic party doesn't necessarily want the workers to have that many rights because they are you know, equally funded by corporations as Republicans are, right? Like they take as much money as Republicans do. And this is a fundamental problem, right? The the tyranny of the two-party system is that you don't really have an objective voice when it comes to negotiating for people with with massive corporations. But this is also the problem that I have with the, the movement in general is that it sort of necessitates this oppositional like posture between corporations and workers. Whereas I think there's like less evil in there than we kind of, or like less malintent than we sort of subscribe to. It's just, a yeah, we're, I don't know. And maybe that's, that's like the, the oddly optimistic version of me is that like, I don't necessarily think that that corporations are against these things, but they are what they're like arguing against is, I don't know, they're either thinking about competition or whatever else that is making it difficult for them to make these decisions where 
if we could kind of come up with rules globally that we could take those decisions out of their hands and force everyone to be, you know, buying labor from the same labor pool that created living wages for everybody and guaranteed universal health care, then all of a sudden it's not that bad. Like the problem is like if we do it here and someone's not doing it over there, then we can just then then um, then those conditions don't improve here. We don't have jobs there. They have jobs, but they're all being exploited. And now now we're in the situation that we find ourselves in. Yeah, that's not good for anybody. I guess I will say, if we're going to continue on the optimistic trend, that having both parties at least have factions within them that are fighting for working class voters and are trying to position themselves as the party of the working class, I think is generally a good thing for those people. And while I think it's fair to doubt like the bona fides of of some of the people that are that are kind of issuing this rhetoric, I think generally the, the conversation is happening in a way that I don't think that it was really happening previously, which I think think for workers in general is probably a good thing. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. Right. Yeah, I, I mean I got plenty more to say and plenty more to think about, but I think we should we should probably cap it there, and I'll do that thinking and talking on my own. <laughs> Agreed. All right, man. We'll call it. See you soon. Yeah. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads Running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away Some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a, a case of lion's head and folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz need an early morning buzz learn the hard way but to those who would die upon that hill, quiet truth is better than a rain. Somewhere along the line, we seem to have forgotten the values sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, the morning let your ego bruise, but what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head and folks of different minds because though we didn't share opinions we share loud American ideal friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz there's hope behind the bluster cause though Main Street may not sell Full of folks just like you and me. When we have trouble seeing the human for the politics, it's time to find a better way to disagree. Some days you win, some days we'll leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find. 
chasing lies ahead. Folks are different minds because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lies head. Folks are different minds because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. I need an early morning buzz.